Hello and welcome to the Smart Beauty Podcast. I'm your host, Viola Levy, beauty journalist and founder of Smart Beauty Creative. Drawing on my own background working in the beauty industry, I chat to guests from some of the world's leading and disruptive beauty brands and organisations. We discuss how they built their brand's DNA, their own industry journey, any trends they may have noticed, as well as how to succeed in today's market, together with any other gems of wisdom they care to share. Today, I'm here with the founder and self-taught perfumer of 4160 Tuesdays, Sarah McCartney. Sarah started out in business at age seven, in her words, buying wooden beads, making them into things and selling them on to my friends. That is until her horrified mother found out and swiftly put a stop to it. Fortunately, this didn't dampen Sarah's entrepreneurial spirit. And after stints writing for The Guardian and Lush, where she was editor of the Lush Times, it was writing a novel about a problem-solving perfumer, which led her on the path to actual perfumery. She set up 4160 Tuesdays in 2010. The name is taken from the number of Tuesdays we should expect to see if we live to see 80, stressing the importance of making the most of every day. The cheery offbeat branding of 4160 Tuesdays is everywhere you look, not least in the perfumes themselves, with names like The Sexiest Scent on the Planet Ever, Damn Rebel Bitches and Tarts Nickadraw. Growing up in Tyneside, Sarah's dry northern wit and straightforward approach makes the world of perfume far less intimidating than its normal, shiny department store dwellings. She is also co-author of The Perfume Companion, The Definitive Guide to Choosing Your Next Scent, that she wrote with perfume writer Samantha Scriven. Last year, the book was a finalist in the UK Fragrance Foundation Jasmine Awards. Sarah is described by fragrance writer and expert Lizzie Ostrom as a punk perfumer, and in the past she has noted... IFF isn't going to offer me a job, but then I wouldn't want to work there. I'm kind of happy with where I am. As an indie perfumer, I can take bigger creative risks. Sarah, it's so lovely to have you on the podcast. Regarding the idea of a punk perfumer, do you think British perfumers like yourself get away with more than perfumers across the channel? I mean, it's funny saying kind of out of context that IFF wouldn't want me to give me a job. I mean, it's not like I applied or anything, just like trying to explain to people that if you start making perfume at the age of 50 and then you you have not taken the right route into the industry but um what would i say what's different uh in france particularly is that it's a very classical route it's a route into perfumery is like going into play in a classical orchestra you start playing the violin age 10 you go to college you audition and then you get the big job perfumery in the classical way is that you go and get a chemistry degree you go and qualify as a perfumer at one of the perfume schools and then you go into one of the large companies and the kind of isn't really an alternative so rather than being a punk perfumer i think i'm probably more like a folk perfumer i do my own songs i sit at the back of a hall and if 17 people turn up and clap then I'm happy. Um, <laughs> it's, it's that sort of thing that I, I like twiddling away with my own particular techniques of making perfume, but it wouldn't be appropriate for the kind of the big clients, the household names. It's it's done differently. For sure. I mean, I was watching the Paulie Yates documentary the other night. I don't know if you caught it or were a fan of hers um, in her yeah. heyday, but she seemed to embody that spirit of British irreverence that I think that we we tend to do so well. Yeah, I think taking the mickey out of yourself and taking the mickey out of everyone else. That's yeah. that's I've, well, I've discovered the more the more I 
deal with overseas customers, for example, the more I realize that British humor doesn't always travel. Um, no, it because... really doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, Tarts Nicodroy, you mentioned, somebody once reviewed that uh, on a big perfume website and said, Sarah McCartney calls her things silly names. She named one after a prostitute's underwear. It's like, no, mate, that's not what Tars oh, Nicodroy is. That's, <laughs> it's, it's, no, it's not a thing. But by the way, Damn Rebel Bitches, that wasn't my name. That came from Sarah Sheridan, founder of Reek Perfumes of Edinburgh. So I can't claim that one. Damn Rebel Bitches was what the English called the revolutionary Scottish women in 1745. So that one, it's a great name, but it's not mine. I'm, I'm fessing up. But that's so that's a perfume that you collaborated on? Or, yeah. Uh, it was, yeah. And Tarts yeah, Nicodraw, I, I know you remember saying that your your grandma used to say that youngsters of loose morals, that's what they would smell like, was a Tarts Nicodraw. Is that correct? Yeah, it was the young lady next door to her who was about 60 at the time who would go out after tea time smelling like a Tarts Nicodraw, you know, obviously up to no good. I mean, uh, when I say youngsters, she she was thinking of, I mean, my grand would be about 85 at the time, and she thought the youngsters were 60. So uh, I made it kind of <laughs> to be a, like a 1950s, 60s style fragrance for, for definitely going out, out. But yes, it was, uh, that was actually a blend of several different fragrances that I accidentally spilt on myself while filtering. I thought, oh, wow, this smells great. So I put them all together and realize it smelled like exactly that, a tart snicker draw. So, well, I say that, you know, it's a theoretical thing, isn't it, really? It's not It's not a real thing, the tart snicker draw. It's just an expression to mean yeah. that you've absolutely slathered yourself with perfume and you're about to have a good time. So, yeah. It's a brilliant expression. <laughs> it is. And so did, do you ever have co- like customers that think that the sexiest scent on the planet ever is indeed that, like you are actually making a claim for, for that? You could be. I'm afraid. You know, so. no. Yeah, no, it's, it, you're right. You're right. It's um, people in the UK tend to laugh and go, ha, ha yeah, right. Um, but I have been asked the question, do you seriously think this is the sexiest scent in the world? Okay, like, no, I don't even think it's the sexiest scent that I make, actually. It, it, that's just its name. Um, and and there have been arguments about it on serious perfume review sites. You know, people say, who does she think she is? She thinks she's made the sexiest scent on the planet. But I think this one's sexier. Like, oh, really, oh, wow. don't worry about yeah. it. It's, it's, it's a joke. I... Uh, so I sometimes just have to precede things with British humour warning. Um, like I should probably just have a BH stamp that stick it all over everything I ever write or say. Yeah, whenever I go abroad, I always miss our kind of piss-takey humour culture that you just don't get anywhere else. I think it, it is what kind of makes us stand out. It, what, what it was is I, I heard, I can't remember who said this, but I heard somebody say that uh, the difference is between America and the UK using the same language is that an American will introduce his best friend and say, hi, this is my best friend, Steve, he's great. And a, a British man might say, this is my best friend, Steve, he's rubbish. And the Americans think, why would you say that about your best friend? And the British man would think, excuse me, I'll make my own mind up about that. Thank you very much. And and both of them value the friendship equally, but they just have a completely different way of describing it to their uh, someone they've introduced them to. 
Yeah, one is like selling it in and the other one is lowering the bar completely. So there's no expectations so that the only way is up. Perfectly um, put, yeah. <laughs> and I, I don't know about you, but my experience as a fragrance writer, there seems to be a bit of snobbery when it comes to the British perfumery scene. Would you say that's true? Well, it's a tricky one because, I mean, you know, the, the girl lounge originally came to the UK to learn perfumery from florists and... A lot of things happened during the 20th century when the British industry was kind of just dismantled. The factories used to make perfume were kind of taken apart and used for other things at key periods of history. And it's sort of built back up again, but it's never quite the same. Whereas around the 1940s, France burst back out again and said, right, we are taking over. We are masters of fashion. We are masters of perfume. And I challenge the rest of the world to come anywhere close. So while there's a lot going on in the US as well, the UK's, I think we've got this odd relationship with France anyway about everything that we yeah. do. Um, and I mean, the French think we can't make cheese and we only have two sauces. And Don't have our own word cuisine, make... all that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, and God, it's, it's, it's called cookery. Uh, and we can't make wine. And so, and the British have sort of nodded and said, oh, yes, that's right. That's right, yes. And I think if you ask most people, you know, where does perfume come from? They just go, oh, France. So I don't think it's necessarily just the French think they're better. I think they probably do think they're better at it. But I think the rest of the world's kind of just went, oh, yeah, you probably are. Um, I, I made one recently for a French woman for an event. Uh, it was The event was in France. And she was asked, um, but who made it for you? And she said, well, it was a British perfumer. And they said, oh, you mean a French person working in England? And she said, no, it's actually a, it's an English woman. And they went, oh, no, <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. I'd warned her in advance this would happen. And they were, they were quite shocked. Because maybe it's a set the expectations low and then just go for it. We have a lot of freedom we will uh not necessarily take the oh well you must have in your range you must have a sheep on you must have a fougere and you must have this you must have that and then you're finished we go no you know what i think i'm going to mix coconut with lily of the valley we, we just go in there and go no i think i'll do something different yeah i think that's what we do we do best really and i think that's what i love about the british perfumery scene is we don't necessarily all go to fragrance school and, and learn the, the sort of classical compositions it's more just doing our own thing and being as creative as possible and breaking rules to make more interesting perfume yeah I mean that's the indie scene there are a lot of trained perfumers working within companies within the UK I mean Roberté and um, Ferminesh and Givaudan and Man they, they all have establishments within the UK with some French perfumers mm. working here as well and people from all around the world. So that there is a, a whole parallel uh, classically trained scene in the UK. But then you've got this, what you don't have in France is Indies. And what you do have yeah. in the UK is like, well, no, I think I'll have a go at this. Why not? We can learn how to paint. We can learn how to write our own songs. I think I'll learn how to make perfume. That's the thing, because whenever you hear about famous noses, it's always French and the biographies are always the same. They grew up you know, in France, going to their grandparents' chateau in Normandy at the weekends, roaming the countryside. It's the same kind of story with more well-known, like established noses, which is why it's the indie scene I think we have is so great. When it came to like the branding for like for 160 Tuesdays, how did you build the brand's DNA and the language? Because it is so distinct and unusual. Yes, well, well, I mean, I owned the 
websites. I own the domain name, but I also own sarahmccartney.com. I owned it because I was writing a blog about not wasting your life. And I own sarahmccartney.com, but if I Googled myself, it said, do you mean Stella? So I'm not related. I thought, and I'll stay away from that one. The language, well, I was a writer for quite a few years. And basically, I was, I was allowed to let rip on the lush times. I was allowed to use the style that I speak in to write about cosmetics. So I just write the way I talk. And then I taught other companies, even like Aviva Insurance and Eon Electricity. I got drafted into those companies to try to help people write the way that they talk so they sound human. Um, and I just had a lot of practice at it. And then I'd written this novel. So I just kept going. So the brand is sort of an extension of me. And the visuals then were my mate Lucy at Paper Aeroplane. And gradually, as I could afford it, I'd got, I would get somebody to design another bit and add another bit on. It's an accumulation of inputs from people whose work that I admire, plus my words. And I love the names to your perfumes. What what are the criteria? Is there a, is there a criteria when you christen a new scent? Well, no. Sometimes I have a name and I want to make that. And sometimes I have a fragrance and then decide what suits it. There are quite a few song references keep creeping out or creeping in to to what I'm doing. But I mean, there was there's one that I was I've got in the desk here. This is called Crikey Coconut Caramel. Somebody had asked Brilliant me. Brilliant name. <clears throat> yeah, thanks. So yeah, but one of the customers when when we first got locked down, you know, I just put a call out onto the Facebook group and said, Hey, if you wanted the perfume of your dreams made, what would it be? I was actually trying to get in one man whose mom had asked me to make a perfume for his birthday, but secretly. So I just said, hey, everybody, what would you want? He was the only one who wrote back. Oh, my gosh, that's so amazing. I can't even think. So I said, no, Jay, please think, think. But in the meantime, about 60 people said, I would want this, 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 this and this. So this idea of the caramel with coconut and white flowers and co well, lily of the valley and co co coconut, I thought, well, I'm going to have to make that. And then when it's, I smelt it, it's just, Nick just went, oh, crikey. So it became crikey coconut caramel. That just happened. So, and thanks to the, for the idea for, you know, I would never have put that together without somebody saying, this is the perfume of my dreams. So that just occurred. Meet Me on the Corner, that one, the Lindisfarne song. I wanted to make the aroma of sort of my teenage years before you had a phone and you had to arrange to meet and stand there until somebody turned up. And I was wearing citrus sheepers, so I sort of wanted to make that. And I thought about that for five years until I'd made it. Others, um, sometimes we choose it later. What do you think makes a good perfume name? Because I think we've moved on from the kind of obsession and je and opium. And then obviously like Chanel Number no. 5, that made waves because it was so cryptic and minimalist. Yeah, I mean, at that time, in 1923, lots of people were calling their perfumes number this and number that. There were... I mean, there, there were many perfumes called that. Uh, Chanel, since then, uh, decided to copyright the, the numbers. I've got a Molineur numéro 5 oh, wow. as well from way back in history, but you can't do that now. The trend these days seems to be doing what it says on the tin. This one's a raspberry and rose. Boom. Looking at perfume names, it seems very much to be going, I'm going to describe this a little bit for you to help you expect what to understand, rather than it, an evocative emotion in French, perhaps. And now Je Reviens translates mm. as like, I'll be back. Lemon by Coty means the magnet. 
it, it, it's very much of a time when men made perfumes to put on women to attract men. And I'm not mm. sure that, I mean, I think some of that endures in the French industry, but I don't really think that's what's happening these days. But I think there's so many out there, people kind of want to be either amused, amused and provoked by a name, or they just want it to say, this smells of oranges. So I'm going to call it orange. Yeah. That's kind of Tell sad me. in a way, because you you like to feel like a perfume's got a bit of a personality to it or something more than just Lily of the Valley and Jasmine. Yeah, there's always been that, of course. There's always been mm. you know, April violets and there are a lot of Lily of the Valley perfumes out there, something that can't be trademarked because you can't mm. trademark Lily of the Valley. Mm. And names that are the same around the world as well, inoffensive in each language. As you say, some names don't translate very well or people take them too literally or miss the nuance in the humour behind them. Yeah, then you've got something like Joy where Dior actually bought the whole company so that they could have it. They bought Patu, which owned Joy, so that they could bring out their own one. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. There you go. There you go. Do you think that people are wearing scent now in a different way? Like what you were saying just now about how a lot of French perfume brands back in the day talk about scenting the backs of your knees to entice a lover or, you know, to make sure that your husband won't cheat on you. And obviously now I think people are wearing fragrance for different reasons. They want to feel good. They don't just want to smell good to attract a potential partner. I think that is key to what's happening in the perfume industry, really. I think... Obviously, you don't want to wear something that a close person to you absolutely loathes. That would be a bad thing. But I think when we were all stuck at home for a while, a couple of years ago, people wore perfume to make themselves feel better and then realised that that is a thing. You you don't necessarily put it on to go out, uh, you know, pleasing other people. You put it on because you like it. It is comforting and uplifting. And the reason why you might change out of your pajamas and put a nice shirt on, <laughs> even though you're not leaving the house that day. Definitely. And I think perfume, yeah, it was it was a very important part of that. And now people are continuing with that and choosing things which they like. Um, I mean, there's always going to be some, oh, yes, put this on and magic will happen. (laughs) And I I don't think I'd want to claim that for any of my perfumes. The behind the knees thing, that still exists. I saw a video recently with somebody saying this is how to wear perfume like a French woman. She was a French woman, so I guess she's allowed. But she did you know, suggest that if you spray perfume behind the back of knees, that's so that you will attract men who are sitting on benches watching you walk by. I could say yeah, I found that whole thing. Yeah, exactly. I think blimey is the best word for that. It's like, no. We're in the 21st uh, <laughs> century and then you hear like guff like that. Yeah, no, that's not that's not for me. But um, maybe what will happen now is people think, oh, really? I'll put it behind my knees then. I don't know. <laughs> Just picturing um, people sitting on benches in Paris waiting for nice smelling women to walk by is is not something that really I I think is appropriate. Yes, it it is. (laughs) But I think Um, it has changed. I think people are like, no, this is about me. I'm buying it for myself. And also they don't wait for somebody else to buy them a perfume for Christmas. That used to happen. I remember when I was a kid, women didn't go out and buy their own perfume. They got one given for their birthday and like thank you very much okay I'll wear that it's like flowers mm, yes unless you bought them from Avon of course my mum used to order lily of the valley and honeysuckle from Avon that's how people used to buy their own perfumes and make their own choices I think in when I was a kid I don't know, maybe oh, they mom, still do mum used to get the Avon catalogue and I used to love looking at the perfumes there was a guy's one in there called prowl <laughs> 
<laughs> oh dear now that is a name that is a name right you don't forget that yeah you know, i haven't forgotten it to this day so it worked i think it was yeah. probably a take on uh, links or something like that yeah some kind of some kind of large furry animal prowl oh goodness. yeah yeah Again, that sounds kind of sinister <laughs> i want to make that one and that's in on the yeah excellent <laughs> no that's funny <laughs> a lot of your perfumes have really interesting backstories which of your fragrances stand out where that's concerned oh well i'll tell you a good one have you smelled goodbye piccadilly ever it's a bit of a rarity have, no. no well i'll tell you what happened 2014 london transport museum had an exhibition called goodbye piccadilly and it's about what happened on london transport during the first world war and you know that time changed everything in europe nothing has been the same since then that pretty much annihilated the ways that everybody had had worked by up until then for a couple of hundred years. But one of the things that happened was that women were given jobs on the, the trams, for example. Yeah. You could be a, a clippy was a job. Women took over the jobs of clipping tickets and checking the people who paid their fares. They weren't allowed to drive the tram. And I was asked to give a talk on the kind of fragrances that people would have been wearing at the time. So I got out some materials like the, the ironones, the violet smells, vanilla, Isobutyl quinoline, the leathery smell that was coming in round about then. Patchouli, lavender, natural and synthetics, because that was basically heading towards in a golden age of perfumery. And then I thought, well, I know, I'll blend it together and see what it smells like. So I made this fragrance and I gave out little vials to the people who came to the talks. And it was called Goodbye Piccadilly after the event. But when I put it all together, I thought, just a minute, this smells exactly like my great aunt Hilda's front room so she lived in a council house in Middlesbrough since demolished and yeah it just kind of hit me that the the old woods leather furniture and probably a lot of cake going on and that's just what it was like and then I was wandering around the place I tried on the clippies uniform and I thought just a minute I remember a thing my great aunt Hilda was a clippy on the trams in the first world war and it was one of Amazing. those things that yeah your grand kept saying oh aunt Hilda was a clippy on the trams in the first world war and over and over until it was meaningless for a small child. I didn't realise this is one of the first jobs that women had ever taken that had previously only been assigned to men. I had no idea that, you know, my great aunt Hilda was at the forefront of equality. She was a real pioneer. Yeah. So that weirdly just all came together from I don't know where because I had I like little jigsaw just that last piece just slots into place and you see the whole picture and you think I don't even know how this actually occurred I'm not sure the laws of physics can explain it but <laughs> there's a story for you and I put in violets at the time because that was the smell of suffrage the vote for women movement they wore violet perfumes they wore green and white and purple stripes and banners so I'd, I'd already kind of included that but then I hadn't realized that great aunt Hilda effectively personified it. The nature of fragrance itself it's so creative you just wonder why there aren't many more brands like yours that are doing that that have these sort of interesting origins and stories behind the scent. I mean when I get presented with a bottle of oud encased in a Swarovski encrusted bottle in a giant velvet box covered in plastic. I just want to want to cry. What can I say? I mean, they probably sell an awful lot more than I do. That might be one of the reasons that not that many like ours exist. But you've got, well, you've got what, like Freddie Albrighton and doing amazingly creative things and Sarah Baker and Kyle Firm from, from Red Lesson. Oh, 
Lismores, of course. So added together, I'm sure we wouldn't sell 0.1% of the value of big shiny ouds in multiple layers of crystal encrusted packaging. So maybe we just need to dig out more adventurous customers. I mean, Lush, where you worked, was another example of a creative British brand. What did you learn from working there and working with industry titans like Mark Constantine? So, yeah, I was there for 14 years and I learned, well, (laughs) I thought that because Lush had their own perfumery and, you know, Mark was in effect self-taught and then Simon, his son, went on to do the ICATS course in the UK, which is the perfume course that exists. So I thought that all companies had their own in-house perfumers and, you know, all brands made their own sense. I think most people think that. But of course, yeah. that's very, very rare. So I thought that was normal because, I mean, I wasn't intending to make perfume myself. I was intending to be a novelist. It's just that nobody seemed to want to publish the novel and I'd written about perfume. So I certainly didn't learn how to make perfume because they never let me in the lab. Mark did once throw some, like I said, can I have some alcohol because I want to make some perfume over the weekend and he just kind of laughed and went give it a go then and gave me a a little bottle of alcohol to have a go with but I don't think he thought he was unleashing anything I think he thought that I would be rubbish at it and I'd go back to writing so I learned about ethical businesses really I learned about I learned that I didn't want a big company I didn't want to do retail and take on lots of staff I was quite happy just being small and building a brand that I was delighted to put my name on well technically I didn't put my name on it but you know what I mean but you're still yes yeah but it was it was less about actually making things and more about how to treat people some things I learned I thought were good some things I learned I thought were not so good but I certainly learned about what it's like to have a startup and the decision making that needs to go on I, I learned that I didn't want to make skincare <laughs> so why was that oh just the testing and the packaging and the stability and the faff how quickly it goes off one of the reasons that I'm very happy making fragrance is that you can leave it in a bottle for 20 years and it'll still be fine if you haven't let the oxygen in that sort of thing I learned that no fragrances that I wanted to wear actually existed. <laughs> so yeah. I, I sort of thought, I learned that anything is possible. If you set your mind to, I say, no, that's not true. I can't fly uh, and I can't do the splits. But I learned that if something is possible and somebody else is doing it, then you can probably put your mind to it and think, well, maybe I can have a go. Lessons from Lush. And what sort of fragrances were you wanting to wear in a nutshell that weren't being created? Well, at the time, I wanted a hazelnut chocolate, and there weren't any. It's like going into a shop and saying, I would like a pair of elephant cord orange flares, please. And they just look at you and go, no, there aren't any. Nobody's making orange elephant cord, and nobody's wearing flares. So this was 20 years ago. Now you can't move for blinking chocolate fragrances, but I wanted to make a a chocolate raspberry blackcurrant, actually. I guess I probably still haven't done that. Maybe I will. There you go. Idea for the <laughs> next fragrance. I watch programs like Dragon's Den a lot and somebody is, you can tell they're extremely creative and have these amazing ideas, but they just can't get to grips with, with the business side of things. How do you how do you manage to make it a success being sort of creative, but then also dealing with the business side as well? Are you just naturally 
gifted at both or was it a bit <laughs> <No>. of a struggle <laughs> no I mean sometimes I just wish I'd just done painted watercolors like my mother you know and what happened was it gets to a certain size and then you think oh I'm going to need people and I naturally like being by myself a lot so I Same. do find it yeah it's and and but I can't be because I can hide in an office sometimes but decisions never stop needing to be made what I'm quite good at is maths so the figures don't hold any fear for me and uh, on Dragon's Den when they say well okay so what's your profit margin and you can tell they have no idea no, how to work that out no, clue. no and so I know I know what's going on there I know what our gross profit was last year I know what our net profit was last year which is zero but that's owing to increased costs in everything but we're still here so we can keep I can keep an eye on the figures and all that I get very left behind with press releases and letting people know what I'm doing to be honest I never launch anything it just kind of slides out a little bit and before people know it's like Oh, hang on a second, have you got six new fragrances since last year and you didn't bother telling us? Like, oh, sorry. Like my retailers say, like, wait, <laughs> I did, but my, I, my customers are asking for this. What is it? Like, oh, yeah, sorry, I made it, forgot to tell you. So it's the juggling that there's quite a lot of it. Very important to take on people who are better than you at stuff and Definitely. believe that, you know, that they're going to take some of the weight off. I think there are some companies that I have encountered where they honestly think they're the best at everything and they kind of resent employing other people because they would do it all themselves and they would do it better if they only had the time i think if you see a spark of talent in somebody to encourage it is absolutely lovely i mean i really enjoy seeing people if they come up and say hey could i do this because i think i think i could add that to the company and like, yes please that would be absolutely marvelous but an indie perfumer is never going to have enough time to spend in the lab, really. I'm allocating April to the lab because I've just got to get in there and fiddle about with things and tweak things and improve things. But I'm also working on the new packaging at the moment. But then I don't try and do that myself. I met somebody lovely on the on the tube and she's doing it for me. Your company seemed to have lots of encounters on the tube. Like I bumped into your oh. team member when I was like going through a breakup. I didn't realise that he was connected to you. That was. I know, thinking. I know. It was like because Arthur came in the next day and just said, "Oh, I saw somebody. I gave him my bottle of Midnight in the Palace Garden. Can I have another one? Because it was awful. Because this woman, she was just bursting into tears. And, and so I said, "Here, I work at a perfumery. Have this perfume. It's lovely." And then and he came in and told me. And then when I met you and you said, oh, you won't believe it. Somebody once gave me a bottle of your perfume. I went, yeah, that's Arthur. So Yeah, you were so like nonchalant <laughs> about it. You're like, yeah, that sounds like him. Yeah, that's just like another day in the office. <laughs> yeah, but I remembered the story. It wasn't It wasn't just that was kind of special. But yeah, that's the thing. And so we, we've got Arthur because, I mean, just some other time these days, who is an actor and also an author and is children's books are doing really well and his his new adult book seems to be going very down very well with his agent and he's been here for nearly nine years working with us some of the time and he decided he'd make films so now he makes our films so if somebody says well I think I'd like to do this for the company and they're good at it they well yeah off you go that sounds that sounds fabulous so that happens and then sometimes people get good at something and then leave and take the talents off and develop them somewhere else and that's cool too what is your approach to to the marketing and social media side of things um social yeah. media 
I started from scratch and just tried to be friendly <laughs> with people mostly. Like our Facebook group was very friendly. The Instagram, of course, got wiped out recently and I've had to start all over again. But, oh, I saw that. Um, what a nightmare. Um, yeah, I, I had, I had, uh, well, I was on a BBC radio program called Sliced Bread. And it's an excellent program. But I, I said I thought that dupes, effectively counterfeits, were unethical. And so one of the companies that makes dupes set a bot attack on me. I was, in fact, I've heard what this is. I was bot hammered. And what they very cleverly did was... I was bot hammered. Yeah. Somebody buys a piece of code, writes a piece of code, and they had um, something like 500 not real, you know, fake Instagram users report me for counterfeiting. So Instagram just shut down my account. And then when I finally got through to a human and said that, look, this is not right, I was criticizing counterfeiting. Uh, they, they ran it through the algorithm again and said, no, no, it shows that you were counterfeiting. So they shut me down. And this happens, I've discovered this happens to a lot of people on a very, very regular basis. You're very open to attack by malicious intent on social media. And But I then thought, oh, well, whatevs. Um, I was very upset for about three weeks. And then I thought, well, okay, my 10,000 followers and 3,000 posts have gone. I will oh start gosh. again. <laughs> Yeah, things like this. Things when all you want to do is sit in the lab and make some perfume, things like this. Mm. So I'm now at 4,160 Tuesdays. The fragrance and beauty world is just saturated with so many brands and this, yeah, so many are clamoring on, on platforms, social media and in digital sphere trying to get people's attention. Like, How do you get your voice heard above all of that as a brand, above the deal? Well, I, th I, think, I think you actually try to be sociable. I think that's what social media is for. If it's, if it's you... Personally, I mean, I've seen people, you know, be a bit rude about some of mine, and I've just comment said, "Oh, that's really interesting." Well, it's not for everyone, is it? And they're like, "Oh my God, is it actually?" He's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, it's me." You answer questions and you write interesting things and you give people some information that. Uh, normally, I try to be quite funny, so it's actually worth reading that and re and looking at that's that's what I try to do. Be kind if you possibly can. If someone takes the mickey, then block them. But mostly be interesting and generous and kind and funny and useful. And we've had celebrity sense. We've now got niche and unisex sense. Where do you see like the next big perfume trend in, say, 10 years' time? Hmm, it's interesting. It, it seems to be that it's dividing into ultra-expensive niche and counterfeits. I mean, I'm not concerned that anyone's going to copy mine because they don't sell enough. So, uh, I mean, if somebody started to try and sell a fakes version of, um, I, what do I make? Meet me on the corner. They thought, meet me on the stairway. Nobody would have a clue what that smelled like. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of not worried about that. I do think it's going to move towards wearing fragrances because they make you feel wonderful. There's no point wasting money on something that is okay. As prices go up, I think people are going to wear something that they seek out things that really make them feel something that, you know, maybe something they haven't smelt or felt before or something that they smell and it really just makes them feel good deep inside beyond just niceness. There's, there's a lot of bland niceness about and I think we need more love <laughs> I'm prepared to take the 
oh my god what's that i can't possibly wear that on skin in order to get the oh this is so amazing i've i have got to have a big bottle of that i think there's a lot of money spent on the bit in the middle try not to offend anyone just go all out to get the extremes the love get the love and accept a little bit of disappointment might come with that i think that's what the indies are for you know, I think that's the, that's the thing, coming back to the you know, the big companies and the classically trained perfumers, that's the area which the financial risk is so massive that the creative risk has got to be smaller. There's got to be a lot of people will really, really like this. What we can do is go, eh, about that, we're never going to sell thousands we can't even make more than 50 bottles a day so we might as well go for oh my goodness have you smelt that and take the risk that other people will give it one star but as long as you've got a few fives that's all you need to worry about so you're not yeah. looking Anything. to get bored by lauder <laughs> anytime soon <laughs> um no i don't know if you've noticed but those big companies don't buy indies they don't well they don't buy companies that can't scale up they buy independent companies, but the fragrances are still manufactured by bigger companies. They'll have an independent brand owner, maybe, but they are created so that they can go into department stores. Once they're in a few department stores or independent stores, then the big companies will look at buying them. But if somebody's coming to me for advice on setting up a business, hoping that if they're going to make it themselves, then they're going to be discovered. I generally point out that it's not impossible, but it hasn't happened yet. So no, that's not that's not what I'm looking for. I there's one thing actually. Mark Constantine said once that if he got investors in, if he got bought out, they'd probably try to stop him using real jasmine because at that point it does become a lot about the money. And with me, it's yes, a lot lot about the money. <laughs> so what is next in the long term? I I keep trying to streamline. But I just keep making more perfumes. I keep having ideas. I keep, you know, <laughs> it's tricky. Uh, but I am making perfumes for other companies now. So in particular, I'm working with uh, uh, Black Cliff. I've made Black Sand. But I'm working with uh, Black Cliff in Barbados with other, you know, another creative director, Tom Wilson Bino, who's just wonderful to work for. So he kind of gets the best out of me. I have a a Patreon where I'm just spreading knowledge it's called Synthusiasm. So I have an, an online scent school where I put up formulas for people to try and I share techniques with them and we make films and we have Zooms and chat and it's a very, very, very affordable way to get into perfumery. So I, I see my future as probably just trying to spend more time encouraging more indies. I don't want it all for myself. I want us to become a movement. So the more of us there are, the stronger we will be. Where you will lead, others will follow and follow in great numbers. That's the master plan. They already are. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's been so lovely chatting with you, Sarah. Thank you so much um, for speaking to me. And I really look forward to hearing about the next chapter for 160 Tuesdays and um, the new sense you've got coming out. I'll, they are, there are about six about to slide out we just got all the certification today so uh they'll be Not heading in six. your direction <laughs> amazing all right then sarah thank you so much again thanks for having me bye i hope you enjoyed that episode all links will be in the show notes and feel free to visit smartbeauty.com or visit us on instagram to find out more about what we do and if you enjoyed listening please don't forget to rate and review smart beauty on itunes as it helps other people find us see you next time